Pastor Martin says, the reading this morning is from Ephesians, and it's chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the sword of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that wherever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare in fearlessly as I should. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Um, Somewhat unusually this week, I uh, finished my sermon on Tuesday afternoon, um, which is very unusual for me. Uh, Normally it's Thursday afternoon, but because I had various things on in the rest of the week that meant I was going to be away in different parts of the country, um, I finished it on Tuesday afternoon. And then as the events of this week unfolded, I thought, isn't that amazing that on this Sunday in this church, after the events of this week, we're looking at spiritual warfare and we're looking at the reality of evil in the world. And whenever we talk about this subject, and we do it very occasionally, um, it is invariably the occasion when things go wrong. Um, So what you don't know is that for the last hour, our technical team have been in meltdown. Um, Loads of things on the stage didn't work. Uh, Loads of things for the musicians didn't work. Um, computers broke that have not broken before. Um, and at about quarter to 11, I just started to giggle. Because um, I thought, well, the devil, if this is the best you've got, um, it's not very good. Um, but invariably, on this particular subject, things like that happen. So we just need to be aware of that. Um, he will always try and give the impression that he is more powerful than he is. And we just need to put him in his place and say, get down and be quiet. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are reigning over all, that you are in charge of this world for all that things happen that we don't understand and that are not of your kingdom, where there is tragedy and there is pain and there is sadness and there is grief and there has been much of that this week in the news and in the United Kingdom. And we pray for those affected by those events this morning. We pray this morning, Lord, that we would see who the real enemy is. 
that you would give us an awareness of the reality of evil, but also the reality of the victory that you have won. So whatever our background, whatever our thinking, whether we know a lot about this subject or a little, we ask that you would speak to us now from your word. Refresh us by your spirit and increase our vision of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've got a Bible or a smartphone or a tablet or something, if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 10 to 20, uh, those are the verses that we're going to be looking at in a few minutes' time. And uh, as I was reflecting this week on this whole subject of spiritual warfare, it struck me that I've been a Christian for almost 40 years. I know, obviously, it was minus 10 when I became a Christian, um, but I've, I've been a Christian nearly 40 years. And when I became a Christian, age 17, um, this whole subject of spiritual warfare was around in the church. But the first Christian book that I ever bought was a book called Hidden Warfare by David Watson. And it was all about spiritual warfare. When I went to Spring Harvest 30 years ago, all the seminars were about spiritual warfare. I vividly remember being in the same venue for two seminars, one after the other. The first was on Christians in politics. There were 12 of us in that seminar. The next seminar was spiritual warfare. I was the only person who stayed in that room and I watched as 11 people left and 500 people came in. And it struck me again, that just told us a lot about where the church in the UK at the time was. Lots of Christians became very energized, um, even obsessed by spiritual warfare. Books were written, seminars were held, songs were written. Um, if you were a Christian around that time in the evangelical world, um, you sang songs about spiritual warfare, um, you went on prayer marches for Jesus, um, you prayed against anything that moved, and you claimed anything that stood still. And I vividly remember when I worked with students 30 years ago, uh, having a, a, an animated conversation with a, a Christian student who told me proudly and clearly that that morning she had claimed her shower for Jesus. <laughs> and we had an interesting chat discussing what that actually meant and what she thought would happen when the people after her went to have a shower in the same shower that she had claimed in the name of Jesus. Now, for me personally, this was a really live issue. Uh, my dad um, was a spiritualist, a faith healer, for about 16 years uh, of his life. He got heavily uh, involved and committed to spiritualism. And so from about the age of 12 onwards, I had all sorts of weird and wacky spiritual experiences. Um, I woke up one night and my bed was just going up and down just going up and down. The mattress was just going up and down. And I remember just lying there and watching my feet go up and down and just saying, I was a very new Christian, and just saying, in the name of Jesus, stop. And the bed just stopped. That sort of thing gave you a, a bit of a free song around spiritual warfare. You thought, okay, this is real. 
My dad, when I, I remember I was about 12 or 13, had been out to a, a, a spiritualist healing clinic and he came into my room to say goodnight. I turned the light off. Um, he came into my room. His face glowed green. He, he was like um, the Incredible Hulk. And I remember just sort of rolling over and saying, Dad, your face is green. And he said, oh, it's okay. It's my healing aura. And I said, oh, fine. Night. And rolled over and went to sleep. And he said night, and he went out of the room. When I became a Christian, when I started to share my Christian faith with my dad, after about five or ten minutes, I was physically and emotionally, never mind spiritually, exhausted. Absolutely exhausted. And it took me about two or three years to realize that what was going on was that I wasn't just talking to my dad, but I was talking to the spiritual forces that were involved in his life. So for me, this was a, a living reality when I became a Christian. Now, what's striking is that 30 years on, very few people now speak about this. Very few books are now written about spiritual warfare. Very few songs, Mark, are written about spiritual warfare. And people don't have seminars on spiritual warfare. And it somehow faded into the background and into the obscurity for the vast majority of Christians in the UK. There are occasional sort of highlights, but really it's, it's low on the radar. And it's sobering to hear these words from C.S. Lewis that he wrote in the Screwtape Letters, a, a very well-known quote if you've known it before, but he said this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician, or I might add, a charismatic or a liberal, with the same delight. So charismatic Christians 20, 30 years ago overemphasized the reality of the devil. Liberal Christians just completely ignored the existence of the devil. And probably the right approach is somewhere in between the middle. The reality remains, however, that we are in a spiritual battle. And the enemy of the church is not, despite the horrific events of this week that unfolded in Westminster, the enemy of the church is primarily not ISIS, or Boko Haram, or radicalized Islam. The primary enemy of the church isn't secularism or Richard Dawkins. It's neither capitalism nor socialism. The primary enemy of the church is not poverty or injustice. It's not consumerism or indifference, hostile and evil that some of those things might be. Our real battle, according to the Apostle Paul, is in Ephesians 6 and verse 12, is, he says, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And what Paul does, he uses four phrases. The rulers, the authorities, against the powers, and the spiritual forces of evil. And with each description, he gets worse. Each description is more powerful. Each description is slightly more foreboding. Each description 
implies that what we're up against is something very serious. He deliberately uses the Greek word kosmokratores. That word was used in spells in Ephesus, the place where this church is that Paul is writing this letter to. They use that word a lot in spells, and Paul deliberately uses that word to say, this is what you're up against, Ephesian Christians. Cosmocratores. Cosmocratores. There's a cosmic dimension to this battle. It might have personal, it might have individual, it might have national, it might have religious, it might have philosophical, it might have economic manifestations, but primarily this is a cosmic battle between good and evil, between God and the forces of evil ranged against God. Now for Paul and the Ephesian Christians, the battle was real. If you remember anything of when the Christian faith came to Ephesus, there is this tremendous clash of spiritual powers as, as hundreds of people turn to faith in Christ in Acts chapter 19. There's um, what John Wimber used to uh, describe as a power encounter between the two kingdoms. A riot breaks out. Um, Jewish exorcists are beaten up when they try to use the name of Jesus like any other spell. Because Ephesus was a center of occult power and demonology. At the root of all the faiths and um, different belief systems and, and idolatry in Ephesus were, were demonic powers. And, and they manifest themselves when the gospel of Jesus comes against them, bumps up against them. So if the demonic is a daily reality for people that Paul is writing to, it's no surprise, therefore, that in writing to this church above all churches, Paul writes what we know as Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 10 to 20, the armor of God. So what advice does he have for them, and what advice does he have for us? Well, just to recap, the first thing to say is the battle is real. He reminds them of the reality of the struggle and who the real enemy is. Being a Christian is not simply a lifestyle choice. It's not something that we go, well, I could have done this, could have done that, but I decided to become a Christian. Christianity is much bigger than that, much more important than that. The gospel is not just good advice as to how we should live. There are issues of life and death at stake. Light confronts darkness. Truth collides with false religion and spirituality and indeed evil itself. And Jesus, on the cross, triumphs over death. And one of the descriptions in Colossians chapter 2 is of Jesus making a public spectacle of the enemy, the evil one, through his death on the cross. Through the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Jesus has won the final battle. Jesus has triumphed over evil. And although the evil one, Satan, the devil, whatever call, name you call him by, still roars, uh, wanders around, as it puts it, 
as a roaring lion seeking to devour. I was talking to, to Jill Hall yesterday, who's a, been a member of this church for years before she moved up north. And she had a picture last week, and she said, I suddenly had a picture, Dave, of the devil as a lion, but he's a toothless lion. And that's quite a helpful picture. So he appears as a lion, roaring, but actually he's got no teeth. And when you see a lion with no teeth, he becomes a bit laughable. And that's the picture of the devil in the New Testament. Yes, he's real. Yes, he does try and do things, from sound systems to terrorist attacks. But actually, he's toothless in the end. And he knows that he's toothless. And he knows that he's beaten. He knows that he's defeated. He will always try and give the impression that he's more powerful than he is because he's a liar. So he will always try and give the impression that he is more powerful, that somehow spiritual warfare is a battle between God on one side and the devil on the other. And I don't know about you, but I've been around Christians and some of the prayers they've prayed, and if we're honest, some of the songs that we've sung, some of the books that were written 30 years ago, almost gave that impression that really it was a question of, it's in the balance you know it's a bit like sort of celtic rangers hibs hearts is who's going to win we're just not sure it's not like that we're talking about god the everlasting god that we were singing about who's the creator of the universe who holds time and space in his hands and a created being that's who the devil is. He's a fallen angel. But he's a created being. And he knows that his power is restricted. He knows that it's limited. And he knows that he is defeated. Jesus has triumphed over even death itself, which is the ultimate expression of the enemy's work. Jesus triumphs over death itself. And if we've switched sides, as it were, from darkness to light from death to life, there is no doubt that we are now on the winning side. It's a bit like supporting Manchester United. You know, well, it used to be the case, um, you used to know that that was who was going to win. And being in the church, being on God's side is, is, is like that. You know who's going to win because ultimately it's all been settled on the cross. So we are on the winning side. The opposing kingdom may manifest through human structures or ideologies or people, but people are not the enemy of God. Now again, I don't know about you, but I've been around lots of Christians, been involved in evangelistic missions and crusades, and where sometimes Christians gave the impression that the people that they were talking to were the enemy. People are not God's enemy. People are not the enemy of God. The devil is God's enemy. People, he made them to live in relationship with him. So the battle is real. Secondly, verses 13 to 18, it's a spiritual battle and needs spiritual weapons. Now again, maybe you um, were taught this in Sunday school. Maybe it was a crusader class. Maybe it was a scripture union beach mission. Uh, maybe it was a CU talk. Uh, maybe this is completely new to you. But the imagery that's used here is of a Roman soldier. 
I've found a particularly hunky one that might interest some of you. Um, and it's a Roman soldier. Paul is writing this letter under house arrest. So he would have had visual aids around him all the time. So he's, he's looking at a Roman soldier in front of him as he's writing this letter. And he's describing armor. But also there are echoes from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 11, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 59, where God himself is pictured as the messianic warrior. So this is not just the armor of God. This is God's armor. That's a subtle difference. This is not just the armor of God. This is God's armor that he decides to share with us. We get to use, we get to wear God's armor. And it has several components. Now, if we're honest, again, in the last five or ten years, in parts of the church, the imagery of the Christian as a soldier can feel a bit uncomfortable, feels a bit imperialistic. But what Paul is, is trying to do, and it's an image that he repeatedly uses alongside that of an athlete and that of a farmer, those are two other pictures that he uses, is, is to think about the good points of, of what it is to be a soldier. Don't know about you, but, but this week I was, I was so struck on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and yesterday hearing the interviews with the people who were involved in the incident at Westminster and struck that so many of the people who were involved were either military or ex-military. And again and again, when they were being interviewed, the refrain was used, well, in the army, that's just what you're trained to do. That's what you're trained to do. You're trained to help, the training kicks in, and you just get on with it. You see somebody coming at you with a knife, and even though you're a police officer now, no longer a member of the army, you still tackle that person with a knife, even though it costs you your life. You see somebody injured and wounded and you go to help. You don't run away from the problem, you run towards it. That phrase again was used again and again. People choosing not to run away, but actually choosing to run towards danger. That's military training that's kicking in. And that's the sort of thinking that Paul is, is describing here in Ephesians chapter 6. He's saying, be, be, be a soldier, be military, be prepared to respond and to act and to go towards the danger. So very quickly, he talks about the belt of truth. If you fought in the Roman army, um, you would have worn a tunic. Um, it's a bit like the sort of surpluses that we occasionally wear at the front in church. That's what it's designed on, which is why we no longer wear them. Um, but you, you wore this tunic... And if you were going to fight, you needed a belt around your tunic to tuck your tunic in. And that then enabled you to fight and to wield your sword. It's very hard to wield a sword if your robe is... is I used to find that at 9 o'clock communion. Uh, it's very hard to wield a sword if, if your robes are, are billowing out. So you tuck your tunic into your belt. What's the belt of truth? It's the basics of the gospel, the basics of the Christian faith, lived out with integrity. 
loyalty and faithfulness, kindness and compassion, forgiveness and mercy. It's those qualities that the Archbishop of Canterbury spoke about so movingly in the House of Lords when he just raised the question, what is it about our culture? What is it about what we believe that makes people go and treat the person who was just about to kill them? How does that person be a terrorist one minute and then be the recipient of first aid from paramedics and police officers and MPs that he was just trying to kill a minute ago? It's forgiveness and compassion. It's kindness and generosity. It's grace and forgiveness. It's the belt of truth tucked around that enables you to function as a soldier. Secondly, the breastplate of righteousness, right relationships, horizontal and vertical. Holiness in our character and friendships. And what does a breastplate do? It protects your heart. It protects the soul of who you are. That's what a breastplate does. Thirdly, feet fitted with shoes of the gospel. The picture there is of a soldier, perhaps you've, from the First World War or the Second World War, sleeping with their boots on. Or perhaps you've seen those films or um, documentaries of, of, the, of the, the Battle of Britain pilots sitting outside their Nissen huts, always in deck chairs, on a, a beautiful June day in 1940 or 1941, waiting for the call to go up and, and sort of fight the Luftwaffe, always with their boots on. That's the picture that's being used here. Feet fitted with the readiness to share what we believe. That you're trained, that you know what to say, you know when to say it, you know when to keep quiet. Fourthly, the shield of faith, essential to Roman military strategy. We all know how important it was to Roman armies, the shield, because we've all read Asterix the Gaul. But whether it was the shield that was put together in a tortoise or a square formation, a shield that did protect five foot tall, one foot wide, but designed to fit together in those formations that would take the Roman army across most of the known world. It was, it was that, the way in which they used their shields, both as defensive weapons but also as offensive weapons, that enabled the Roman army to win many of the, the battles that they were fighting. So shields that are designed to fit together. The shield of the faith. The helmet of salvation. A Roman helmet was made of hard iron. Only an axe could penetrate it. And what does a helmet do? It protects the head. It protects our thoughts, our attitudes, our minds. And then, last but one, the sword of the spirit, the only offensive part of the weaponry. The sword of the spirit, not just primarily the Bible, but words that God speaks, the truth of who God is, the truth about who people are, words that set people free. And then the final and the most important weapon, Paul says, pray for God's people on all kinds of occasions with prayers and requests prayer is the most offensive weapon that we can use in spiritual warfare when i became a christian and realized that 
um, I'd been affected by my dad's spiritualism. After about 18 months, um, I went to see a vicar. He happened to be the diocesan exorcist. And I asked him to pray for me. And I went in expecting ghostbusters. I went in you know, expecting sort of clouds of fire and boom, bing, ding. And, and Tom just prayed for me, prayed for me speaking in tongues for about 20 seconds and said, you're done. And I said, is that it? He said, yeah, it's done, dealt with. There was no fuss, there was no hysteria, there was no whipping things up. He just simply prayed in English, prayed for 20 seconds using the language of praying in tongues and then said, that's it, you're done. Get down, be quiet, get out. Leave this man alone. And that was it. So prayer is the most important spiritual weapon that we have. And finally, Paul says, be strong in the Lord. Literally, be made powerful. There's echoes of Ephesians 5, verse 18, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Go on, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Go on, be, I won't go on about going on, being filled with the Holy Spirit, but is that continuous present imperative. Go on, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. How does the devil work? The devil works usually through temptation. That's how the devil works with most of us, 95% of us. Things that we're tempted to do and say that aren't what God wants us to do and say. Very occasionally, if people, perhaps in our family or ourselves, have been involved in the occult, something like spiritualism, there might be oppression. I, I found the picture of like a, a chain that was around uh, your ankle, just holding you back from going forward. And that chain just needs cut in prayer. So temptation, oppression, very, very occasionally, very, very rarely, one in 10,000, what we might know as demon possession, more accurately, demonization. That's when someone gives the whole of their life over to Satan and allows Satan to come in. People like John Wimber, people like Tom, the Darcy's and Exorcist, they would say one in 10,000. Only one person that I've ever met in 30 odd years of ministry has been like that. And it was dealt with. It's temptation that Satan usually works with. Is it the same as mental health or epilepsy? No. They're different things. There's mental illness, there's epilepsy, there's a physical illness. They're different from people being oppressed or possessed by evil spirits. If you think you've got an evil spirit, you haven't got one. It wasn't just the New Testament way of describing what we know of epilepsy or mental illness. They're different things. Jesus prayed for some people to be healed. He rebuked evil spirits on other occasions. The two things are different and distinct. Neither is there any complicated demonology in the New Testament. Those books that were written 30 years ago that I read and read and read and read and read and read had all sorts of theories and ideas and descriptions about what evil spirits were like and what they were called and where they lived and how they operated. None of that in the New Testament. Jesus never goes into any of that. Paul doesn't go into any of that. When he meets it, he deals with it as though he's dismissing a small child or an energetic puppy. Get down, be quiet, get out. No fuss, no hysteria, just deal with it. So the reality is that there is a war. The reality is that we have an enemy. 
The reality is that we have weapons and armour. Evil may manifest itself in people, through nations and in systems. But it's not a question primarily about greed or injustice, cruelty, poverty, broken relationships or corruption of the image of God in people. Though those may be ways in which the evil one does manifest itself. But primarily it's a spiritual battle that we're involved in. And therefore we need to use spiritual weapons. And that primarily is prayer. Would you stand?